So welcome to episode two of the Fairly Lame Podcast. My name is Dom and today we have some pretty interesting stories. So we've switched up the order of everything. So the what the fuck moment is last and we have a pretty good story today. It's something about a massive construction works, I guess you could say, in Saudi Arabia, 170 kilometers long. We'll touch on that at the very end. If you're listening on Spotify or even watching on YouTube, in the description, there will be the timestamps for each of the news stories. If you want to skip ahead, uh, if you're listening on Spotify, this is another great way to find out what topics we're going to be talking about in today's video. So as always, stay tuned. Let me know down below what are some good conservation Feel-good environmental stories happening in your area of the world. It's super hard finding, especially for America. I looked up, put up a video on TikTok about it. Had a scroll. I don't know what website it was on. But of the first two pages, there was like 10 bodies found. The rest was just wildfires and floods. So not what we're here for. But any good news, comment down below. But yeah, let's get into it. And this is something I ooh. And this is something I should have said at the start. If you're listening on Spotify, over on the YouTube version of this podcast, we're having a look at the articles together so you can follow along. Um, yeah, and so you can see what sources we're coming from, and I'm not just making up all the info on my own. So the first post we have Australian agronomist Tony Ronaldo is turning African deserts into forests. So when I when I so I put this video up on TikTok and half a wall bloody broke out, but that's a story for another day. But I realized I got the country wrong because if you see down here, it says uh, under there's an image of his car broken down uh, on his way to plant trees, and it says the Australian's epiphany came while he was letting air out of his tires in a Nigerian roadside. But I I thought that said Nigerian but it's in Niger instead, N-I-G-E-R. I think that's how you pronounce it. But anyways, let's get into the story. So um, this Mr. Ronaldo bloke, he was involved with a lot of uh, tree plantings. And so he broke down and one of the biggest issues in Niger apparently is um, desertification. Um, and he was saying... Uh, he had spent more than two years in West African in the West African country attempting to halt the devastating creep of desertification uh, and failing miserably. And so he was looking around at the landscape while he was letting down his tires and just noticed how just desolate the environment was. And apparently in the 1980s, Niger was a landscape on the point of ecological collapse. Um, and so you would expect... With some of these descriptions, like, uh, where is it? Uh, farmers had cut down existing native forests decades earlier, le- leaving a denuded landscape, sandblasted by 70 kilometer per hour winds and ravaged by high soil surface temperatures and apocalyptic dust storms. So you'd assume pretty much no nutrients in the soil, heaps of erosion, no, sp- no stability, um, no soil moisture and you'd you'd expect when it does rain it probably wouldn't retain it well at all if it's all just dust and sand um 
And then because there was a lack of diversity, there was no natural predators uh, to insect pests. And so even in the years when you did get rain, you'd have an explosion of locusts and caterpillars, which you would expect would just destroy your crops. So uh, absolute lose-lose. And so he talks about, thought about giving up and leaving Africa um, and just, yeah, two years into his land restoration project in Niger, Mr. Ronaldo had yet to see any success. Expensive tree planting programs failed time after time. Um, and so then he was talking about the perception of him from the community, just some crazy white guy talking to these um, very poor individuals and farmers, just trying to feed their families and you've got this guy, you know, trying to tell them to plant trees. And so he said he was, um, after he broke down, he saw a bush. He thought it was a weed, but it was a tree that had been cut down. Uh, and typically the Nigerian farmers cut all the shoots from the tree stumps. So the stump's still in the ground, still trying to grow, but they just keep knocking it back. Um, you would assume so they have more land to grow their crops on, which does make sense. Again, when I put up this TikTok video, um, there are a couple people saying, well, like, that is so dumb. Like, why would you think um, cutting down trees gives you more land? But it does make sense. Like, it's the same thing happens here in Australia with if you're trying to grow grass for cattle or anything like that. Like, you remove the weeds because grass can't grow on the exact area that weeds can grow. And obviously, if you've got a tree, that's going to take up a lot more space than, like, a dandelion. And obviously, there's no point in just having one tree. So, you'd need quite a few to see any benefits um, and that would be a substantial amount of their land especially for these um, smaller farmers and so then he says everything that was needed was literally at our feet I realized then I didn't need to plant trees we weren't fighting the Sahara Desert I didn't need a multi-million dollar budget we just needed to work with nature instead of fighting it and destroying it and so then the I guess the concept he used is called farmer managed natural regeneration and it's not new he's not he didn't come up with this he's not this um you know inventor aussie savior he just came over um and yeah was trying to help out and this was i guess the the breakthrough that he came to um and so yeah it's a centuries old method of cultivation practiced all around the world um and so then he had a, a really hard time recruiting pre people to help him out. Um, and so he said the... Where is it? The idea that the farmer's forebearers had made mistakes wasn't a popular one. Like by saying... By, by him, like a foreigner, coming in and saying like, no, you need to let these trees regrow. It is kind of saying that your ancestors mismanaged this land, which, um, yeah, it sounds like they didn't take too overly nicely um, but finally he locked in 10 volunteers and uh, after some setbacks the concept gained supporters as people saw its benefits so the new trees these are the benefits the new trees provided animal fodder extra wood for fuel served as windbreaks and added organic matter to the soil i do wonder how he recruited these first 10 like if there was any if they had a certain connection to him how he managed to win 10 people over because you would expect you would face a fair bit of backlash. Like if you had your, if you, uh, yeah, if you had your family farm, you're the bloke in charge of um, growing the crops and whatnot, and you were maybe this is some land that'd been given to you from your family, and you decide to 
let all these trees grow on it and your family is struggling. It could be, uh, I'm sure there'd be a lot of pressure from the community, but apparently it seems like it worked out. Uh, and 20 years after Mr. Ronaldo's roadside epiphany, the movement restored 5 million hectares of agroforest in Niger, all without planting a single tree. Now, I wonder how quickly this, um, I guess, all the benefits must have been realized. Like, if it only took 20 years to restore 5 million hectares, that's insane. It must have been everyone just jumped on board. They see their neighbors. And again, if you're listening on Spotify, there's an image here of um, three sections of this hill all at different stages. This is in Ghana, but it used the same principle. And you can see there's no time scale here, but it's there's a very barren landscape on the left with one tree, a couple shrubs, and some really brown grass. The middle, you can see some smaller bushes coming through. It looks like there's a couple animals grazing it. Um, and then finally, on the right, some much more mature trees, maybe 10 metres tall, heaps of them, heaps of shrubs. The grass even looks green from here. Again, a couple animals in there as well. Um, and yeah, it seems like he has... Not him alone. Obviously, there's a lot of people involved, but he would have played a massive benefit with, yeah, virtually no cost. Like, you're not paying to pay for trees, grow seeds, anything like that. The trees are already growing. It's kind of like when you're growing grapes at a vineyard, you just prune off the stems that you don't want, like you want your tree growing straight or whatever, um, and then you just let it do its thing. And, yeah, I mean, it must have been confronting. Maybe not confronting, but it must have... Like, if, if you're constantly failing, planting all these trees, spending all these, I don't know if investors' money, maybe um, charities' money on these tree projects, and the answer was, uh, just do nothing and let the trees grow. Um, I'm sure that would have gone down. I mean, look, it was successful no matter what, and I'm sure that's the main thing. And so that's our first story. So, again, if you wanted to listen to any or have a read of any of these uh articles yourself they are down the links are down below on youtube and i don't know if you can put links in spotify but it, the title is just australian agronomist tony ronaldo is turning african deserts into forests posted on abc news and so our second story out of the nation's capital um you know the the heart and soul of australia uh, australia's most beautiful city most livable city um, I think it won most livable city in the world a couple of years ago, to be honest. But so the ACT partners with federal government to build new composting and recycling facilities. Okay. So the federal government has announced a $13 million funding, $13 million in funding for a new large scale composting facility in Canberra. And so it will be built uh, down the south. And so they're currently testing it out with. Uh, a couple suburbs in the north of Canberra, around 5,000 households, and they expect um, that the service will expand to all houses in the ACT once the new facility is up and running. And so it looks like you get your own bin as well, specifically for this waste, which they're calling uh, FOGO, F-O-G-O. I don't know what that stands for. Um, but yeah, apparently this facility, oh, food organics and garden organics. There you go. That's what FOGO stands for. But it will turn around 50,000 tonnes of food and organic waste into valuable compost for use in agricultural and viticulture of our region and gardens. Um, and so, 
this is Australia's, this is Canberra's food waste, which will be turned into compost so that we can return those nutrients, which are otherwise going to landfill, to the soil, to improve our soil and then grow our food again. So I don't know if this uh, compost will be sold at the tip. I don't know if, this is just a Canberra thing, but if you go, to, I'm sure it wouldn't be. If you go to the tip, you can buy like wood chips and shit. So I'm assuming you might be able to buy maybe like buckets of compost. I don't know what you sell compost in. Or maybe if, maybe if it's like not runny and stuff, you can just get a trailer for a little bloody thing. Um, but it, it is interesting that it said it will go uh, for, the u- for use in agriculture and viticulture. So I don't know if that's a special partnership or if that's something the farms and the wineries have to uh, pay for. I don't know. But it also does say, um, so the new facility would be able to accept commercial food waste, which that's massive because I've done a bit of work. I've done my dash in uh, a couple leagues clubs, so kind of like just bars with like pokies pretty much, which like are affiliated with rugby league clubs Um, and a couple cafes and restaurants and just seeing the amount of waste people throw out and these kitchens, like perfectly good food, like you'll come back and there'll be, they might have just like eaten the chips and everything else is there or like they just pick the salad off, all that kind of stuff. So it's amazing that this will be able to accept commercial food waste um, and it would likely be in an in-vessel composting system, which apparently just means it's a, it's like inside of a container, like it's just not a pit outside. It's like in a building, in a factory, um, which would allow for monitoring of temperature, moisture and aeration. And so they're also, on top of this, I don't know how much money these guys have, but hey, we need to spend it on something and we're actually spending it on the right stuff for once, which is up the lads. Go, <laughs> Let's go Canberra. Um, a new $23 million recycling facility would also be built. And so apparently they were looking to just upgrade the existing facility to process uh, more plastics, aluminium, paper, and cardboard, as well as glasses. Um or glass rather, but they've come to the conclusion um, that, yeah, they'll make their own state-of-the-art separating facility nearby. And so it will include optical sorting technology to to better separate polymers, glass washing, and screening technology to sort through cardboard and paper. We want to make sure that we reduce our contamination, particularly for the paper and cardboard streams, so that it can go onto the paper onto the paper mill and entomb it and be turned into new paper and cardboard products. So a bit of information about this mill, right? So apparently this mill in Tumut, which is uh, just west of Canberra in New South Wales, it produces over, or it uses over 2 million tonnes of plantation wood every year and it's the largest paper producer and recycling mill in Australia. And so you would hope that if we're able to reuse more and more of this plastic and cardboard, paper and cardboard waste, you would hope that we would need less and less plantation wood each year. Um, and so this company, it's run by Vizzy. They sponsor like, uh, if you're into AFL, like Vizzy Park in Carlton or whatever. Um, they do a lot of food packaging and like labels on like canned vegetables and all that kind of stuff. They do a whole heap of that. So that's what this reused paper and cardboard um, would be turned into. And so it should be open within 18 months. Um, But yeah, it depends on the current uh, system in regards to COVID and construction backlogs and all that good stuff. 
But Canberra is honestly doing incredible things. First, I don't know how long, maybe like a month ago, they announced they're banning or they proposed a ban for new petrol and diesel cars from around 2035. And this is the only place in Australia, I'm pretty sure, to do it. I think Queensland might be doing it. Um, and so obviously you can still use, you can still drive petrol and diesel cars and you can still sell secondhand ones, but you won't be able to sell new ones. But this, like, this is what, over 10 years away. So there's a lot of time for lobbying and already you've seen leaders in the car industry come out and say, this is horrible. Like a lot would need to change, especially in regards to price. Like I don't even know how expensive a new electric car would be. I was looking up a Nissan Leaf ages ago and I think that a brand new one was close to like 50, 60K for a Nissan Leaf. It was, oh mate, it was mental. So that's obviously a big thing. Uh, but then Canberra's also banning the installation of new gas connections from 2023. And so in the newer suburbs, which are currently being built, they're already being built uh, without access to gas. And like my apartment, I'm in uh, Melbourne now. My apartment here doesn't have gas, which I thought was surprising. But yeah, all in Canberra, no gas connections. And even if you knock down and rebuild on an older block and you need a new gas connection, that won't be allowed to happen after next year. And so I think this is all just happening off their own uh, their own bat. I don't think they're being forced. I don't think there's any hard legislation uh, directing these actions. I think like they do want to reach the target of being carbon neutral by 2050 or whenever the government's goal is. But I think it seems like, I don't know if Canberra's just leading the way or if they're trying to be a bit of a, a test run because it is like, it's a decent amount city. I think there's around 400. Let's have a look. Canberra population. I think there's about 400 and 467,000 people in Canberra. Um, there you go. But obviously it's nowhere near as big as Sydney and Melbourne. So, excuse me. So yeah, maybe it is a test run. See how it goes. See how viable it is, especially the cars. That's going to be a very interesting one. Um, and yeah, roll it out more broadly, hopefully. But that's the end of Canberra doing the Lord's work again. I don't know what it is about Canberra. I don't know if, because it's a pretty affluent city. Like there is a fair bit of money about and everything's pretty expensive. Like if I come from Melbourne, spend, like do my grocery shopping, right? And I go back to Canberra visit the family and I'll go to the shops there and it's almost double just for the exact same stuff. It's mental. Same like Woolworths, everything. No, nah, it's no good. Um, but our next story. So this could get a bit hairy, but we're, we'll leave out uh, any uh, not good uh, information. But nine stolen monkeys rescued and released into the rainforest. And so they were held in a illegal zoo in Peru. And so this is on Treehugger. Great website. Highly, highly recommend. Okay, so a group of nine spider monkeys, uh, which, fun fact, apparently can live for 22 years in the wild, uh, were rescued from an illegal zoo in Peru and released back into the rainforest. So they had spent most, if not all, of their lives in the zoo, according to the Animal Defenders International Group, which apparently their whole thing is like freeing animals, freeing dogs uh, from uh, poor care, uh, anti-poaching, that kind of stuff. They do have one of the world's ugliest websites. It, oh, mate, it hurts your eyes, that's for sure. But they're doing the Lord's work nonetheless. 
Um, and so apparently they were illegally trafficked in the wild and bred to entertain zoo visitors. And so for several years, the Tarikaya Ecological Reserve, so we'll have a... So this is where... So Peru's like west of South America, right? <laughs> um, and it's pretty much on the border. This uh, reserve is on the border between Bolivia and Peru. And so, yeah, so this river, uh, we come back to it. We come back to it. Um, and so that reserve, the people involved with that reserve had asked to take and release the animals, but their requests, of course, had been denied. Uh because, yeah, I doubt how much an illegal zoo cares about animals being free and living uh, quality lives. But when leadership changed in the country, the rescue was greenlit. Uh, the reserve partnered with the ADI and Peru's Wildlife Department to remove the animals. Um, and so we'll skip some details here. Until they were removed, the rescue groups provided food and nutritional supplements um, to the monkeys for four or five months to help improve their health. And then the people from the reserve, as well as the Animal Defenders Institute or whatever the last part was, uh, began health checks and tests in February to March to determine uh, if the monkeys were healthy and could be released to the forest without risk. They monitored their behaviours and any changes in health while they were still at the zoo. So, here's some good news. All the tests came back negative, the health checks were improved, and their body conditions were good, so they were approved to be released into the wild. So, of course, this zoo fought to try to keep the babies, which I thought was strange. Like, obviously, like, fuck these guys, but surely... I mean, one, it's an illegal zoo, so surely, like, you had no... Like, surely... I don't know, this is fucking... Like, surely if you're an illegal zoo, you just get shut down. It's not like we'll just take some of the animals. I don't know how that. I don't know if that's how it works in Peru or not. I'm assuming it's not. Um, but then, like asking to keep the babies is strange. Like, surely, again, not devil's advocate here. Advocate here. Surely, you're more likely to get the like to get grown ups than like babies which don't have parents. You know what I mean? That's anyway. But the authorities stuck to their guns and insisted that all the monkeys were to be released to the rescue groups. On the day of the rescue, seven adult spider monkeys and two babies were sedated and carefully loaded into crates for the trip. So they had a bit of a drive, went for a bit of a cruise, um, and then they ended up at the or down the river. So that river we looked about, uh, we looked at before. Uh, so somewhere, what's this river? Oh, actually, I'm not gonna. How, <laughs> how do we pronounce this one? Um, Madre de Dios River in the Amazon rainforest until they reached the private sanctuary. So the Tarikaya uh, Ecological Reserve encompasses more than 1,200 acres, <laughs> acres, <laughs> acres, or 500 hectares of protected. What I can't speak now. Protected rainforest and borders the Tambo. Pata National Reserve. I'm butchering this. Fuck, this is going down here. <laughs> At the reserve, volunteers and staff members unloaded the animals. They carried the crates on foot 2.5 k's into the jungle, wading through swamps to reach a safe, protected place to release them. And then once they weren't just dropped off into the wild to go fend for themselves after living most of their lives in captivity. Uh, according to the ADI, the Animals Defended uh, I, 
uh, it's near another area where some more spider monkeys had been released. So there were a couple of lads uh, in the area, but they also installed feeders uh, high in the trees so the animals could find their own food. And so slowly they kind of like weed them off, <laughs> weed? weaned them off these feeders, putting uh, less and less food in there um, until they were self-sufficient. Uh, and the animals will be continually monitored for three months. Um, and then one of the ladies from, or the president from the ADI says, it's extra special when we rescue animals who can be returned to the wild. We are delighted that in this rescue, we had two tiny babies who will grow up and live in the wild with their families. We are honoured to work with uh, the Wildlife Agency in Peru to combat the wildlife trade in Peru and Tarakaya to give these animals a home where they are protected. So if that's not a feel-good story, I don't know what is. Spider monkeys, they do creep me out, to be honest. They're not the most... They're just so, like, gangly and so long-legged. I would be scared if I saw one in the wild, but absolutely incredible animals and another amazing news story. And again, we have the my favourite animal in the world, the sea otter. I've heard they're not the, the most friendly to some other animals, but, you know, I'm sure all animals are have their days and apparently this is side note apparently koalas boy koalas they get two boys meet up they get fucking mm, they get ust but anyway so sea (laughs) sea otters uh, a feasibility study has been conducted to see if sea otters can be reintroduced uh off the coast of northern california and oregon uh and so they were previously found here like this is their historical extent but then they have since vanished as the species were heavily hunted uh to or close to extinction and only uh, only survived in a few small disjunct populations after a slow population recovery and past introduction efforts sea otters now again inhabit more inhabit in yes in <laughs> inhabit portions of their historical range however sea otters remain absent uh, from these areas and so why are sea otters so important besides being fucking adorable so here's some two quick facts for you so one is that they hold hands when they sleep so they don't drift apart so like gun and second one is that they have a special pouch in their skin where they keep their favourite rock. So, you know, maybe if you don't like sea otters, uh, you hate love is what I'm getting at. But they're also a keystone species. So offers, <laughs> offers, otters, sea otters play a fundamental role in the ecological health of nearshore ecosystems. Sea otters eat sea urchins and other marine grazers, which help keep kelp forests and seagrass beds in balance. And this is an issue we're actually seeing here in Melbourne, in Port Phillip Bay, there's so many sea urchins. And I'm sure, I think it's an issue all up the East Coast, to be honest. Even uh, if you know where Bateman's Bay is, heaven on earth, there's so many. If you go scuba diving, snorkeling, anywhere off the coast, so many sea urchins. And they just destroy, because they, they eat the kelp and the seagrass, they absolutely obliterate it. Breed like crazy, I don't know if breeds, reproduce like crazy, heaps of them, um... And, yeah, there's not really that many predators. Um, But their presence in the ocean, the presence of sea otters, enhances biodiversity, increases carbon sequestration, um, 
and makes the ecosystem more resilient to the effects of climate change. And so pretty much seagrass meadows in particular and kelp forests, but mainly seagrass uh, meadows, they are incredible for climate change and storing carbon. Look up, I did a rundown on blue carbon, highly recommend listening to it. It's all the amazing things that um, blue carbon ecosystems do for us. And one of those blue carbon ecosystems are seagrass meadows. And I think... The numbers might be wrong here, but they're right in the rundown, so check that out. But I think it's like they can store these marine stores of carbon, so like mangroves, uh, salt marsh, seagrass, meadows, they can store carbon at a rate almost 60 times faster than their terrestrial counterparts. Another benefit is that they don't catch on fire like trees, so a lot of their carbon can be stored for like millennia. Um, And... They make here's the last one. They make up zero point one percent of the ocean floor, but they hold on to I think it's around eighty percent of all the carbon stored in the oceans. Again, those numbers could be wrong. They're pretty accurate though. They're ballpark. They're ballpark. We'll say that. But check out the rundown uh, if you want it. It's just like a couple minutes. Uh, I guess like mainly talking points on it. But anyway, that is the sea otters. So I mean, look. The official reintroduction hasn't been lodged or papered, anything like that. But you would say if a reintroduction was to go ahead, a feasibility assessment would be the first part. So fingers crossed. I would love to see a sea otter in the wild and they're not anywhere near me, other side of the world. But hey, maybe one will swim across to Mentone one day and we can chill out. Okay, so this next one. If you're a fan of Top Gear, you 100% would know what this is. So Bolivia's Death Road. So you, again, Top Gear reference. Uh, Jeremy, there's a, this massive video. I'll put it up on YouTube. But Jeremy's driving uh, on this fuck. This road is on the edge of a cliff, so deep. And then cars are trying to like overtake each other. And Jeremy, for some reason, takes like the outside. And so his wheels are half off this cliff. About to die, spoiler alert, he doesn't, if you uh, couldn't figure that one out. But apparently, this death road is now alive with uh, wildlife. And so, a new safer road um, here. Uh, yeah, so the, de- the death road has been um, a surprising haven for wildlife since traffic decreased by 90% due to the construction of a nearby safer roadway. And so, just to suss out what would happen... Uh, Because rangers saw, I think they said they saw little to no, uh, yeah, here. So between 1990 and 2005, park rangers saw little evidence of mammals around death road. However, this situation has improved substantially in recent years. So they installed 35 camera traps along 12 kilometers of the road and its surroundings, as well as in the vicinity of Azukarani, a small settlement, uh, and they recorded 16 species of medium and large mammals uh, and 94 species of wild birds. And so some of the, oh, this is going to be interesting, some of the mammals included dwarf brocket deer, mountain packer, oncilla cat, uh, and the birds included endemic species such as the Bolivian brush finch, the light-crowned spine tail, um, as well as vulnerable species, including hooded tinamou, 
Tinamau, and Endangered Black and Chestnut Eagle. So, there you go. Uh, it was open, The road was opened in 1930, and years later, it became one of the busiest routes in the country for light and heavy vehicles. So, that just shows what can happen when humans aren't around to mess things up. Oh, and they've got a couple pictures here again on the YouTube. First one, not a great one, of a truck uh, driving off the edge of uh, Death Road. And by then, what animal? A puma. They saw a puma on the camera traps. I didn't think they said that. They didn't. But hey, there you go. Puma. Uh, Bolivia. So a lot of South American good news stories. There you go. Doing the Lord's work besides the rainforest. Which, um, yeah, isn't <laughs> isn't looking too crash hot. But now we're on to our what the fuck moment. And this is one of the great ones. So, Saudi Arabia are announcing uh, plans for a 170 kilometer long mirrored skyscraper in the eco city of neom n-e-o-m all capitals i don't know if that's an acronym so apparently this is insane like this this is sci-fi this is not real so a zero (laughs) zero a zero carbon city that saudi arabia plans to build at neom in the kingdom's northwest will vertically layer homes offices public parks and schools within a mirrored facade stretch oving, stretching over, I'm getting tired, 170 kilometers. So the first major construction will cost $717 billion. Uh, it will be 200 meters wide and 488 meters tall. It will run 100% on renewable energy, And will also, (laughs) this is fucked. It will also include a high-speed rail with end-to-end transit of 20 minutes and walkways. 170 kilometers in 20 minutes. I wonder how fast this thing's going. And being able to produce enough renewable energy to power that on top of a whole city, that's, (laughs) that's mental. So, the line... So it looks like they're calling it the line. Will comprise of two glass reflective buildings measuring 488 meters high. So I think there's a video later on. We'll give it a watch for those of you on Spotify. Uh, you can listen to me commentate, which will be interesting. From do- <laughs> this is fact. From documents, uh, the documents from 2021 obtained by the paper include designs for vertical farming a marina for yachts, and a sports stadium above ground. Are you sweet? The line will eventually accommodate 9 million residents, the state agency, the state news agency uh, are saying. The city's vertically laid communities will challenge the traditional flat horizontal cities. Uh, well, yeah, I'm sure we'll fucking challenge it. Jesus Christ. So let's have a look at this video. So this is from CIC Saudi Arabia. I don't know what that is. Um, For too long, humanity has existed within dysfunctional and polluted cities that ignore nature. Now, a revolution in civilization is taking place. Imagine a traditional city and consolidating its footprint, designing to protect and enhance nature. The line will be home to 9 million residents and will be built with a footprint of just 34 square kilometers. And we are designing it to provide a health... Alright, so 
when I put this up on TikTok, one of the comments, and this is a great one, what about migrating animals? Again, I don't know what the wildlife situation is in this area, but what, 400, 500 meters tall, that's pretty high, and 170 kilometers long? I don't know. There has to be some wildlife impact in that. And um, in one of the images earlier on, sorry if this is annoying, but cop it. Uh, earlier on, it kind of looks like, I don't know if that's just rock or if there's vegetation, but having a reflective mirror in the desert sounds like uh, fire. Sounds like a bit of a fire hazard. Like it will just melt all the sand into glass. But hey, back to the video. Back to the video. Fear more sustainable quality of life. The Lions communities are organized in three dimensions. Residents have access to all their daily needs within five-minute walk neighborhoods. And the Lions infrastructure makes it possible to travel end-to-end -end in 20 minutes with no need for cars, resulting in zero carbon emissions. By leveraging AI technology, services are autonomous, saving you tilting in zero carbon emissions. By leveraging AI... So it is, for those on you on Spotify, we'll try to paint a bit of a picture, but think about a cinder block, right? <laughs> so you've got the two outside walls, um, or you know what, just think of a brick wall with two bricks on the edges and a gap in the middle. This is what this thing looks like for 170 kilometers. And there's a couple buildings like connecting the two sides and whatnot. And on the top, it's all trees and it looks like parks. Haven't seen the stadium, the above ground stadium. Um, By leveraging AI flying. technology, services. They've got flying cars, okay. I mean. Are autonomous, saving you time. See, 200 meters to me doesn't sound like it would be wide enough. And effort. Designed by world leading architects. The line is 500 meters tall. This is the other thing I didn't realize. I didn't think. The Empire State Building was only 450 metres tall. Or does that just mean that 500 metres is insane? 200 metres wide, 170 kilometres long, and housed within an elegant mirror glass facade. Intelligent solutions create efficiency and year-round temperate microclimate yeah, with natural... So the, the reason that it's hollow looks like for temperature regulation, which I don't understand this graphic. Like, are you generating temperature? Oh, are you generating, are you either heating or cooling, depending on what uh, season you're in? But then you've just got this massive gap in the in the middle of your building. Natural um, ventilation, energy and water supplies are 100% renewable. And again, like, where are you going to get enough water? for like 9 million people living in this vertical. Like you can't capture water because you don't have the footprint for it and you, like the roof is just gardens. The line is designed as a series of unique communities offering a wealth of amenities, providing equitable views and immediate access to the... And again, like immediate access to nature, who's going to want to... Like how much is there to do out in the desert? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's a whole heap and like drive dune buggies and stuff, but immediate access to nature, it doesn't look like it's the most, I mean, in my opinion, it doesn't look like it's the most stunning landscape. And if it's in Saudi Arabia, surely like hot, I don't know how much time you'd want to spend out 
in nature, but surrounding nature. Okay. With 40% of the world accessible within six hours at the heart of the globe's key trade routes. So, I'm not good with geography, so I don't know where that is. Let's have a look. Alright, so where was it? Saudi Arabia. Is it up here? Is that? No, that's Jordan. Because that's what I thought. Or is it there? Is that... Is that... Nah, surely... Surely that can't be that, can it? Surely it has to be there. Oh, it has to be here. What's it? <laughs> What's here? Um, it kind of does. I reckon it's... So it looks like it's potentially... If I'm correct, it looks like it's kind of... You know how in between Egypt, depending on how good your geography is, in between Egypt... And Saudi Arabia, there's that. There's the Red Sea. It looks like it's at the north end of the Red Sea, um, just south of Israel. So, there you go. That's interesting. A place for commerce. The globe's key trade routes at the heart of the globe's key trade. Equitable views and immediate access to the surrounding nature. With forty percent of the world accessible within six hours. 40% of the world accessible for, by four hours. That's... I mean... I wonder what cities that include. At the heart of the globe's key trade routes. A place for commerce and... Com How far away is... Nah. No way. Yeah, no, nah, definitely not America. It wouldn't be the UK, I don't think. 40% of the world from there. Oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, pretty much all of Europe. We'll give you that one. We'll give you that one. Communities to thrive like nothing on earth seen before. The Line. The city that delivers sure new... We can come up with a better name than The Line. I don't know how I feel about that, to be honest. Um, yeah, very... That's a strange one. I don't think it's going to go ahead, to be honest. It seems like it's a kind of... Let, like, just look at us. Not look at us, but let's see what we can build. A bit of a stunt, a bit of PR. Get people talking. Um, but yeah, definitely one to keep an eye on. But this has been episode two of the Fairly Lame podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. And follow on Fairly Lame. Follow on uh, TikTok and Instagram at Fairly Lame underscore. Post four times a day on TikTok and two or three on Instagram. And yeah, we'll talk to you guys next time. See ya.